There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Thank you for listening to Law Talks. Before you listen in to this episode, we wanted to let you know that this was one of our first attempts at creating the podcast, and as a result, it lacks the audio quality and cohesion that the later episodes have. We've kept it unchanged as the content is invaluable and very much worth a listen. We hope you'll stick around and check out and listen in to our more recent episodes too. Today, as we interview Ben Fulbrook, a junior barrister who specialises in public planning, environmental and property law. Ben previously worked as a civil service fast streamer at the Ministry of Defence and was appointed to the Attorney General's C panel of junior counsel in 2020. Okay, so to get us started, briefly, can you please explain what path you took to become a barrister? Uh, yeah, I, t- I think I took uh, perhaps a less conventional path. Um, I didn't have any interest in being a lawyer at university um, and I didn't study law, I studied history. Uh, I thought initially I wanted to maybe go into teaching or academia um, but uh, I decided not to. I was doing a master's and then I thought I'd have a go at going into the civil service um, which I did, and I was, uh, yeah, as I said, on the fast stream of years, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, during the course of those five years, about three years in, I thought to myself, um, you know, is this, is this what I want to do for the whole of my career? I, I've been doing some work with lawyers in the civil service and some barristers, and I thought that looked really interesting. Um, I quite like the idea of getting... Uh, professional qualification uh, because you know it's quite a good thing to have really you you know you're more likely to keep work and um, I thought it would be just a sort of I I had quite a lot of free time at that time so had a bit of time to study so I thought it'd be a good thing to try and I mean I was very lucky because where I was I could study for my law conversion without necessarily making a commitment to move career or you know if I got my law conversion I could have stayed in civil service as a lawyer 
if I'd not got pupillage or anything like that. So I had quite a lot of options. Um, but I thought I'd have a go at going to the bar. That looked to me like what, what I was most interested in. Um, so I yeah, applied for pupillage during the course of my um, uh, GDL at the end of it. And by some miracle, I got it, which um, meant I thought, well, <laughs> I'll probably never get an offer again. So I, I decided to take the plunge um, and go for it. That's so interesting. It's always nice to hear um, a less conventional route, especially um, us coming yeah. from a non-legal degree as well. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. But there are quite a few people in my chambers who have taken um, some indirect routes to to pupillage. Um, either they didn't do law or they did um, an entirely different job beforehand, or they did some work, you know, the Law Commission or something like that. So. It, there's a real, but there are some who went straight through, so it's a real mixture. I think that's a sort of asset to the profession. Really, it's nice to have a bit of, bit of everything. Um, yes. So on top of that, we were wondering what particularly attracted you to landmark chambers. Actually, they they do. I knew that they did a lot of public law. I knew they did quite a lot of government public law as well because um, you know I just looked at the profiles of people in chambers and. I was particularly interested in doing that, that coming from a background working in civil service. So that was one of the reasons why I applied there. Um, I also, they ran, you know, this is really tough for people studying at the moment, but they ran an open evening where you could go and meet members of chambers and hear them talk about what this is like, because you get to meet a range of people from the chambers, um, whereas you don't always often you know, sets of chambers are kind of names on a website, and you don't know what the atmosphere is like. I, I, I could sort of picked up that I thought it was a very kind of open and friendly and quite normal place, um, and uh, that that was attractive. They 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 sort of emphasised the importance of kind of work life balance. Um, we just won an award, legal cheek for work-life balance, apparently, as a set of chambers. I don't quite know how they work that out, but anyway, they certainly emphasise it for pupils and they, and they stick to it. And um, I'm, I'm quite a fan of that because I'm quite a big fan of not working uh, more than I have to. So there are a lot of combinations. It's, it's a combination of things. And I think it's important to remember, yes, you want to get to a good set of chambers that practices an area of law that you want to do. Um, but you you know hopefully this last year has been a bit of a blip because you know well, I haven't seen many of my colleagues but you know before then these are your colleagues these are the people you will work with they're the people you will go to for advice and who you will learn a lot from and that relationship could last for the rest of your career um, so it, if you can it's, it's good to choose somewhere where you feel welcome and you know a place where you want to be um, there are lots of factors basically that go into choosing a set of chambers, but also, as I said, they did make me an offer and other places didn't, so that helped too. Cool. Okay, so as a junior barrister, can you please describe your relationship with others in chambers? Um, reading through your profile, we saw you work quite closely with QCs and things like that, so yeah, if you could just give an insight into that, would be great. Yeah, well, there are lots of different sort of types of relationship you have in a set of chambers. You, you, when you're a junior, you will often be on quite a lot of lead cases where you will, you will support a, a senior junior or a QC um, in bringing a case, which means that you do a lot of drafting and collaboration with them. 
you appear in court and you know you wouldn't typically speak uh do any advocacy but you know you're there to pass notes look up things you know try and try and help them formulate their argument um and that's really helpful work for you as a junior because first of all it's a sort of ticket into some really interesting higher profile cases no one would ever instruct me in these sort of higher profile cases but you know i can get a foot in the door by virtue of being a junior second is you learn a lot because you get a front row seat how these leading um, barristers uh, work through prepare for and present cases so that's really helpful so they're they're, they're great obviously to get um i'm very lucky in landmark to have some really sort of um uh, really sort of open and um, helpful leading counsel who are really keen to sort of get juniors involved in briefs and obviously it helps you a lot develop your experience but then you also have those relationships with people perhaps a more similar level to yourself who are there to encourage you maybe when you think oh gosh I've had a terrible day does this is it just me or does this happen to everyone you know and ho ho some hopefully people will say it's not just you <laughs> they don't always but um or you can go to people who are a little bit more higher up than you and you can say, look, I really, I just don't know the answer to this. Um, you know, as, I suppose as trained barristers, we should all be able to look up the law on certain topics. And generally that's right, you know, except some areas which are really complicated and you kind of really struggle. But there's much more to being a barrister than that. When you're working litigation, you know, a certain percentage of the battle is tactical and that really relies on experience. So, you know, what, what do you... How do you play a particular um, scenario and and that's where more senior colleagues can can really help you um, so you know chambers is a bit like a family you have people at all levels and they kind of serve, all, all have different sort of networks of relationships um, uh, but it's great to have colleagues and it's it's actually it's a really hard job to do alone so you do need to you kind of seek out colleagues you know most people have one or two go-to people who they really pester for uh, help and advice and it's, it's really important to establish that if you can but hopefully soon you'll be back in chambers when things are a bit more normal yeah exactly <laughs> um and moving on from that you can probably tell that we've googled you so we've noticed that you've published several articles and books and we're wondering is this common practice for junior barristers and what do you enjoy most about doing it <laughs> um it is quite common um you know across different sets of chambers i think it's a good way i think it can lead to to work actually i mean you know i've had i've had a couple of instructions where people have said you know we read funnily enough i did this a very odd pre a presentation right at the beginning i did a, it wasn't a, a talk or anything but it was a presentation on orders for sale which is a type of enforcement um, in the county court and I've had several briefs because people just look that up on the internet and say can you um, uh, help with that but so it is a way of getting work it's a way of in increasing your profile and making you look more learned than maybe you are um, and it, you know it, ca it can be a way of learning as well so you know I've, I've wrote a chapter on um, NHS law which uh, given that I, I knew you know I didn't know loads about that before we've got some real expertise on it in chambers I learned quite a lot about it through doing that so it serves lots of functions I think but I think it is good you know it is always good obviously for people to publish because um 
it helps you to develop a reputation and expertise in particular areas. So, and I've been very fortunate. I'm actually writing a, it's a bit of a plug. Where I'm writing a book at the moment on plans and plan, planning law matter, um, which I was very fortunate to get. And you know, it's it's great. I, that has really helped me develop my practice. Just because although the book's not published yet because I haven't finished it, um, I ha as I've learned a lot through writing it. So I think I think that's quite nice as a junior. You can learn a lot through writing. Um, as a senior, you can teach a lot because you know it and you can put it down. So it's a bit of a mixture. Um, but yeah, it's quite common. I think actually, if you're if you're a law student, for example, I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't um, contribute to some publications, you know, university ones. And I and and there's a I did a couple before I um, uh, before I came to the bar, um, and some sort of student publications and things. And yeah, it's worth it. It's worth having a go. I mean, these they really want content, obviously, to to put out and. Um, you've got as much to say really about you know, the development of the law than some legal professionals. And you're probably looking at it in some cases in more detail. So, you know, why not, you know, if you've written an essay on something anyway, why not um, condense it into a short article and try and get, try and get someone to publish it for you. And that, that, that is a real asset when it comes to applying for, for pupillage and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and actually speaking of your planning law work, um, you're saying that's what you're writing the book on what is the most interesting aspect of planning law because having not studied law i don't know a thing about planning law so yeah if you could expand on that well most people who study law won't know a thing about planning law because it's not really something you're ever taught um it's a bit it's, it's a reasonably niche area of law but actually i suppose there, there are two things i find really interesting about planning law um the first is it's quite tangible you, you know you're talking about objects that uh exist and um or, or objects that you don't want to come into existence. So, you know, not per, I not it's not personally the case for me, but senior colleagues of mine, you know, talk about how they walk around the City of London and they see all these buildings that they think, oh, I had a hand in, you know, that coming to pass. And that's that's pretty um that's quite a special thing, you know. And you can't say that about other all other pieces of public law litigation. You, know, you might challenge a piece of guidance, but you can't sort of <laughs> you can't touch it or anything you might say oh, that guidance is consigned to history because i have a hand in it but that's not it's not the same and i think if you're in if you're in any way interested in space and the way that people function in space and i'm not particularly interested in architecture but you know if, if you like the old grand designs episode it's quite it's quite interesting you get to look at lots of designs for people's houses and buildings and you know although that's perhaps not so relevant to what you're talking about the law it's just it's quite an interesting kind of tangible thing to be involved with so yeah that's one thing and actually you know you do hear a lot in the news about planning and the way we use it the natural environment and built-up environment it is actually something that affects um the way we live and actually hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Yeah, so, so from that perspective, it's really interesting. I think the second is that although planning law is quite niche, maybe, it has driven a lot of developments in public law and the law of judicial review as well, um, which have wider implications for the relationship between administrative bodies and um, the members of the public. So lots, for example, lots of the law on fairness developed through judicial review of planning um, committee decisions. Um, and so, and because, because I'm interested in wider public law, it's, it's, it's great to be able to sort of play around with those um, broader like consultation as well, you know, broader topics. Um, and it helps, helps to develop um you know your understanding of public law and actually because if you understand planning law you can understand those public law cases perhaps better and maybe understand public law in maps a bit more depth thank you yeah i think one thing we're definitely noticing from the interviews that like a niche part of law seems to always be related to quite a lot of why yeah yeah and then definitely you know, planning law is really part of public law um but it's 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 linked broadly to a specific statutory code you know planning is a kind of is a is a statutory code before 1948 you could put pretty much anything wherever you wanted but after that you know there was a specific framework that came in saying you can only do certain things if you've got planning permission that's and then public law just develops around that i'm guessing it's sort of like how if you speak latin or greek you find it easier to learn french or italian that sort of thing helps you understand other parts yeah maybe that's like, me stretching a bit no. that's how i'm imagining understanding a niche area of law yeah i think that's probably true maybe i'm sort of bigging it up too much but i found it helpful to to if you know the you understand the facts in these sort of bigger planning cases a bit more to understand then how the courts have dealt with those broader issues like you know fairness and and um so I think there's something to be said for that. Obviously, not everyone's going to learn planning law to understand public law because there aren't enough planning cases um, and, I, and I don't need the extra competition. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's for me, it's one of the attractions. So I quite enjoy the legal element of it. Thank you very much. On a slightly more, a slightly different and possibly more niche question now, um, how do you think that the police crime sentencing and courts bill could impact your free speech and protest legal work? Yeah, so I, um, I, I've done sort of quite a bit of advisory work on freedom of speech and sort of protest and, and, and sort of broader freedom of expression stuff, um, including the right to protest. Um, and you know, I'm not on top of the ins and outs of the bill. I think the real problem with freedom of expression is that it's 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 a right, but it's a qualified right, and obviously. As you will probably know, the European Convention on Human Rights, the majority of the rights that we discuss are qualified rights. So they're not absolute rights. You don't have an absolute right to protest where, wherever, whenever you want. Mm. Um, the state is able to limit it in certain circumstances to the extent that it's proportionate. Um, but and so there's always a balancing act. There's always a balancing act to sort of undertake. Uh, I think it's possible though to go too far. I'm personally 
a great believer in the importance of freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. You know, I might get annoyed at protests in London that really disrupt my travel. And, I, you know, I may or may not agree with some of the aims that protesters express, and that obviously will vary. But I think we need to be very careful uh, that, you know, if you, if you it's, it's, it sounds attractive to limit people's rights to protest when they're not protesting about things that you particularly care about. Yeah. But at some point, the shoe will be on the other foot and um you may regret what you've done so you know to take to take the bill um for example it, it i think very broadly it's sort of in, in, it gives a public authorities the right to sort of prevent or stop protests where they're becoming a nuisance effectively for, for, for in terms of noise or that people not following instructions for members of the public um, and other sections of the of society the, the real sort of risk in that is that of course protest is supposed to be disruptive and and if protest isn't disruptive it's not going to have any impact and so if that right if that right to assemble and to protest is to mean anything at all then it must include a right to be disruptive because otherwise you know if if um uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember some examples from history. It's not very good, but you know, if say you have a civil right sitting in a restaurant, well, if if it doesn't take up any spaces or and nobody cares, they'll just ignore you. And and you know, we all, there are always some people who, you know, we've got some people who wander around local area carrying signs and they just wander around, you know, saying sort of peace on earth and things and that those lord of lanes. But they wander around and you ignore them. Yeah. But if they stop me getting on the train. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to ignore them, and there is, there is a balance to be struck. But I think there's a real problem. I mean, the European Court of Human Rights has said that, you know, when you interfere with a person's right to choose the time and place of their protest, um, then you interfere. You know, then, then, then that is an interference with their rights. Where, where you, you know, and there is something about, and when you stop people being able to be disruptive. Then that again, there's an interference with their rights. So you can go too far, and I think there are perhaps, arguably, some sort of safeguards in the bill, like, for example, the ability of ministers to define by you know by way of secondary legislation what disruptive means, uh, which would cause concern. And it's a problem for the police. So I know I'm perhaps digressing too much, but you you had the you had this the Sarah Everard vigil, which was in the news a, a lot last few weeks and initially the police took the view that the covid regulations prohibited any kind of protest there was a straightforward ban on protest um that did go to court and they had to concede that you can't you can't do that it's not compatible with article 10 article 11 simply to ban protest um it puts the but, but legislation like this does put the police in a difficult position as well because you know they don't really want to become the arbiters of free speech and they shouldn't really that's for parliament um so yeah it's it's a tricky balancing act um uh, yeah clearly I, I think personally I prefer people to have a, a, a broader right to protest even if it's inconvenient my concern is that yeah although I might it might be very irritating to be stopped from going to London for, for the sake of one protest there might, there might come a day when I want to stop people coming to London because it's an issue I care very deeply about that I think people need to hear so
yeah it's tricky but legally interesting and and the problem i mean the difficult thing about human rights is often it's very fact sensitive you know and it's because courts have to decide what's proportionate and what isn't um there are often no very clear no clear rules about what will be permitted and what won't yeah no i was just going to say i think you articulated that perfectly um yeah. i mean the whole point of a protest is to cause disruption so your voice is heard so yeah thank you for sharing that insight um so I think this is our final question for you, and it's quite specific, but how has the GDPR law affected your experience as a lawyer and have you worked on any cases that have involved this? Uh, so the answer to that is, to both these questions is yes, it has impacted. I mean, I suppose the GDPR came in one year, a year or so after I came to the bar. Um, there was a huge amount of work done by various sets of chambers to make sure that barristers had the right systems in place and knew how to protect clients' data. Um, and they sort of went through a wholly justified process of trying to terrify us into, you know, making sure we took every possible step to protect clients' data. Um, in, in, I mean, but in practice, I suppose we're very fortunate to have kind of cloud-based systems and encrypted devices that do make it easier. We are all on where, you know, many more barristers have moved completely online now, you know, on auto-electronic stuff over the last year or so. It's obviously a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because you don't have loads of papers lying around everywhere that you could lose, which would be an absolute nightmare. Um, but it's a curse because clearly you just simply don't know how vulnerable stuff is online. Um, so yeah, it has, it has meant, as I hope we would have done anyway, but taking very seriously um, the, the privacy of our clients and the protection of their data and making sure that we all have processes in place uh, to make sure we do, we do not sort of accidentally email legal advice to you know somebody who shouldn't have it or store information on an unprotected computer so it, it has it has affected us I, I have to say that we are not I suppose we're a bit different from other organizations that are just always harvesting personal data on whom the GDPR must have had a much greater effect um, clearly all of our data you know all of our clients information was always confidential and so we always had to make sure we respected that um, but the GDPR has perhaps added a bit of a sting to that uh, but I, I think it's totally justified so you know I don't have a problem with it um, I, I think and, and so case on GDPR yeah I have I've done I'm doing one at the moment on um, uh, the creation of records uh, relating to people who are recorded as um, having committed non-hate crime incidents and whether that can be uh, compatible with the GDPR, um, which is very interesting. So what I think the GDPR does is it enshrines quite a strong right to privacy in um, <clears throat> into UK law, uh, this idea that you know the state collecting information in you is an interference with your right to privacy. Um, it's a very Sort of helpful starting point that are, that's, that really falls within Article 8 of the European Convention. That, like Article 10 and Article 11, is a qualified right. Um, 
but it that is helpful to have that sort of starting point that you know any any collection of personal data has to be just specifically justified and proportionate um and i think it's 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 a good thing to know I mean, our data is commodified a lot and collected and um we probably between us have absolutely no idea how much of our personal data is available to third parties um we'd probably be terrified if we did know um but uh yeah we don't want to all sort of go get rid of our iphones and our watches and all that and go and live in, in case we, we you know with the convenience that working on the cloud gives me as a lawyer is great um i wouldn't really want to get rid of my phone where i could do my emails and you know stuff but um so it's important that we do have safe you know, there are strict safeguards in place for our privacy um so i think in many ways it's quite good there are it it, it is you know when it all goes wrong um it's good to have some recourse really to the information commissioner and via the gd um gdpr um but uh yeah so it's 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 you know it's an it's in, it's interesting i think i think the gdpr is you know broadly a good thing um and it is i think it's absolutely right that we should have rights to protect our, our our personal data and you know i think it's probably here to say in some form or another for a while definitely i mean i think a lot of people at face value don't find data protection very interesting but when you actually, actually look at the breaches it. that yeah. have happened i mean yeah. I a statistic that i think every time you open an app it has at least six trackers normally like yeah. and i just found yeah. that amazing i was writing an essay on it for university and i was just like oh gosh <laughs> so yeah <laughs> that's really interesting to hear how it's yeah. affected you as a lawyer and also the case you're working on so thank you yeah uh, no, a pleasure. We'd just like to say a really big thank you to Ben for all his advice and insight into what it's like to be a junior barrister. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.